Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports, contests, and events. As the calendar turns to August, we have baseball in full swing and the return of football this month. Use our promo code believe 50 to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's B-L-E-A-V-5-0. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is a podcast. Welcome in everybody. It is August 1st, according to my count, August number one, the first day of the eighth month of 2022. I hope you all are enjoying yourselves here today. Make sure to leave a like, a five-star review, wherever and however it is that you may be stopping in, and make sure to check out our new five-part podcast series, The Fall of the Spurs Dynasty, that is now available wherever it is that you get podcasts. There's a whole bunch of links to it in the description of this episode. I made a documentary. It's awesome. Also, this is episode 997 of the Take It Easy podcast. Thursday will be our 1,000th episode of the show. So, for episode 997, we are going to be joined by our great friend and gambling expert, Razor Rosenthal. He's been off for about three months now. The end of college basketball season, Razor's time comes to a close. He he gambles some baseball, some tennis in the meantime, but his expertise is our NFL football, college football, and the college basketball slate. Not so much NBA basketball or, I mean, baseball. We're going to talk a lot about baseball today, but baseball is the offseason. It's not his strongest expertise, but we have a lot of in-depth baseball analysis. Unfortunately, the thing I was afraid of happening on Friday didn't happen. At the time of recording this, at 6 o'clock on Sunday, West Coast time, there is no trade that has been official for Juan Soto which I was afraid would break over the weekend and we'd have to break into content. But we have no Juan Soto news here today. And if we get to Juan Soto news, it will be on Wednesday, August 3rd, after the MLB trade deadline has passed. Uh, It might even be on Thursday because I'm thinking of working in a Spurs Dynasty episode somewhere in here. We'll get to all of that as we go along. But the place I wanted to start off is what the tomorrow's podcast is going to be about and uh well we're we're working around this and it's something we've been waiting for for weeks which will be according to the memo that was released by cleveland.com and Josina Anderson and confirmed by the NFL Players Association today which at the time of recording is tomorrow but on Monday August 1st 
We are going to learn the verdict of Deshaun Watson's punishment from the NFL as determined by arbitrator Sue L. Robinson for after hearing went on between the NFL and the NFL Players Association. We talked about this back in June about how the disciplinary hearing existed because the NFL and the NFLPA could not come to an agreement on what was a suitable punishment for Deshaun Watson. After the reported news came out, the NFLPA released a statement saying that they encouraged the NFL to accept the terms of Sue L. Robinson's decision, regardless of what it may be. This suggests that the NFL Players Association is expecting a, either a lenient sentence for Deshaun Watson or that the NFL Players Association only stands to lose through the appeals process, which I'm leaning towards the second one, although there was a report, you know, three weeks ago from NBCSports.com that could be anywhere from a two-game to an eight-game suspension handed down because the uh, Players Association was arguing on behalf of just because um, owners are not getting adequately punished, therefore Deshaun Watson should not be punished uh, so much more intensely, which is giving away the game for owners. The owners can punish players and absolve the players and point all the direction at the bad behavior of the black athlete while exonerating themselves of any sort of wrongdoing, whether it be Jerry Richardson or whether it be Daniel Snyder or whether it be Mark Davis and everything that's happening with the Raiders organization or Mark Cuban in the NBA. You can overly punish players and coaches and general managers and bounty gate, spy gate, deflate gate, all the way on down. You can serve those punishments to detract away from the punishments and accountability for the rich and powerful. Forgot to mention Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones got a lot of skeletons in that closet. So that's the argument that the NFL Players Association made in arbitration and you have the NFL only using about five of the 24 women's testimonies in determining a punishment for Deshaun Watson because those were the people who cooperated with NFL investigators. If you want the full breakdown of the Deshaun Watson situation, June 27th, we did a podcast entirely on the Deshaun Watson hearing, which uh, was when the hearing was actually going on, which is now about a month ago. On June 22nd, we did a podcast about the Deshaun Watson settlement. Uh, if we go back further, on June 8th, we did a podcast about the Deshaun Watson New York Times report from Jenny Vrentas the one that revealed the Texans' involvement and the Texans ultimately settled with the 30 women who sued the team. I don't know what the money was that they paid out. Um, they, they said in their statement it was not an exoneration. It was not an admitting of wrongdoing. Um, but the New York Times report revealed Deshaun Watson meeting with 50-plus women over a long period of time. We did a, a podcast about the story on May 27th about Deshaun Watson. You can go all the way back to March when we did an episode about the one-year completion of the Deshaun Watson case since the allegations first came to light against Watson. So we have about five different podcasts to go back to with the full details about Watson. And we've done a lot of research around this story. We followed real sports reporting on this. We followed the reporting by the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and really in-depth reporting that's been done around what I have said is a sports story for a generation. We're not going to see a situation like this with this type of powerful person in a situation to force his way out of a team. A quarterback that good has never switched teams under any circumstances, nonetheless someone facing 
ser- uh, accusations of serial sexually predatory behavior. And uh, we've talked about every time we've come up with this story, the humanizing aspects of this, the legal aspects, and the NFL slash, you know, how this can be a broader picture of football uh, reflecting society. We've talked about that every time we follow this podcast, and we will do that again on Tuesday when the verdict comes out. And what I wanted to talk about first and foremost here, without having any of the information around the Deshaun Watson case, all the details we've talked about before have been, in in essence, leading up to this moment. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate. June 27th, 2022, full podcast on the hearing. June 22nd, 2022, we did a full podcast on the settlement. June 8th, 2022, we did a full report on the New York Times story. And back on May 27th, we did a full story on the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel reporting around this case. So specifically, those four podcasts, they combine to be about three hours. It's really in-depth analysis about why it's important for Deshaun Watson to be held accountable for his actions and explain some of the processes that will lead to a verdict that will ring across the sports world the way that I imagine the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard verdict rang across a larger society of America. I I think we're going to see a similar type of reaction on both sides within the sports world. And so what I really, I mean, we could go back further to before I was born and talk about the O.J. Simpson verdict and all the things that were riding on that with issues of race and police brutality and and fame and, and powerful people getting exonerated for bad behavior. We could go to that type of situation and all the different intersecting pieces of the Deshaun Watson case. So again, and I'll, third time, this is, I promise, this is the last time I will mention it. June 27th, June 22nd, June 27th, June 22nd, make sure I enunciate that, June 27th, June 22nd, June 8th, and May 27th. We did four different podcasts about the Deshaun Watson case. There are other ones further back, but those ones are the best details you can find for any questions you may have about this case. And so after all has been said and done, we now have the preparation of the news coming in. Everyone is starting to uh, prepare and make preparations, and tomorrow we'll talk about what the appeals process will look like, regardless of what the decision comes in. But what I wanted to say first and foremost, before the decision comes out for Deshaun Watson, a story that, again, a sports story for a generation, now in its 18th month of proceedings, what I wanted to focus in on is, I hope that there's accountability in this situation for the victims of Deshaun Watson's serial sexually predatory behavior. We talked about on June 22nd when the settlement came down that the money represents some form of accountability. It's not about the money itself, it's what the money represents for these victims. And again, there will be each case's unique situations. Real Sports with Brian Gumbel reported that three of the 22 women who pressed charges against Deshaun Watson had engaged in sexual relationships with him. And there are all sorts of unique cases that if we dig into it and, and hyperanalyze, it will be a case where all of these victims and all of these people who have bravely come forward are going to have their own story that we thought was going to have their own day in court, and ultimately it benefited Deshaun Watson, a man with infinite resources, to essentially pay a fine, not admit wrongdoing, get a a non-disclosure agreement, and pay out settlements. And for 20 of the 24 women, that money at that time represented a form of accountability for them. 
And a punishment for Deshaun Watson is going to reflect some form of accountability because ultimately Deshaun Watson has been rewarded in many ways over the past 18 months. He got one year of paid leave, yes. He also got a fully guaranteed contract that was the richest in the history of the NFL. Money from that contract he will then use in order to pay out those settlements to women. And this punishment that comes out on Monday, which is today, but tomorrow by the time I'm recording this, it will represent some form of accountability. It will represent some form of punishment for Deshaun Watson's behavior and keeping powerful people accountable for bad behavior, in this case, serial sexually predatory behavior. And I hope that whatever the punishment ends up being will reflect some sort of accountability and closure for the victims. I don't know what that represents. I don't know these people. I don't know exactly what that number has to be for it to measure some form of accountability. It's going to be something that will be incredibly polarizing regardless of what the number is, whether it's 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 games, all the way down to an indefinite suspension. Whatever the number is going to be, it's going to be polarizing. And each person probably, each victim, because that's the only people who should matter in this analysis, is accountability for the victims. Because trying to do law and order with the NFL is a lot about public relations and public perspective. For the victims of Deshaun Watson's behavior and the people who have had to relive that trauma over the past 18 months, I hope that whatever that number is can measure some form of accountability for as many people as can possibly be reached. Because ultimately everything else is not important in this respect. The Cleveland Browns have negotiated a contract in such a way that if Deshaun Watson gets suspended for a full season, his contract just gets kicked backwards a year. And the Cleveland Browns have set up a deal where he's only making $1 million against the salary cap in his first season. Therefore, any punishment he has will just be a negligible fine and missing years of his career. And his money's already guaranteed on the next contract unless a handful of things come out sometime in the next six months, which don't seem to be the case. And then after two years, the statute of limitation will pass on Deshaun Watson. And that is where I will point to this situation and say, this is your essentially one chance at a form of accountability for those women. And we talked about on the June 27th episode that the NFL tried to condense this down into having it resolved before training camp. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. It, it took two weeks longer than the NFL and the NF and Deshaun Watson's camp had initially intended, and they rushed the end of the investigation. And at the same time, after the hearing was presented, Sue L. Robinson took the time to make the judgment. Obviously, it ended up being a month after the proceedings concluded. So in that respect, I think that the legal process, or at least the NFL's legal process, which again is not a legal standard, it's an employer having a legal process because after the Ray Rice situation, they decided that they needed a full-scale legal process in order to try and avoid the negative public relations aspect of what happened with only giving Ray Rice a two-game suspension and then suspending him indefinitely a second time over. What I hope comes out of this is some form of accountability for these women and these victims of Deshaun Watson's behavior. 
if there's one thing that I've probably grown as a person on and taken out of this process is that I hope that in the end there is some form of accountability for the victims. I don't know what that number is because I don't know these people. That's the thing that should matter more than anything else. And it's really the only thing that should matter in regards to handing out a punishment is some form of accountability for a powerful person who is engaged in sexually predatory behavior across two years. And if you go back to the four episodes we've done in the past, we list out the details of what exactly Deshaun Watson is being accused of and under what time periods. We've heard accounts from numerous people and lawyers from both sides with The Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, the investigations by Sports Illustrated and New York Times. We've heard from people who aren't even pursuing charges against Deshaun Watson. We know that he visited 67 massage therapists. There's 30 people who in some form or fashion pursued lawsuits and more people who didn't who told their stories to Jenny Vrentas. So... In that respect, I hope that those people get some form of accountability because after this decision, it's essentially bookended and closed from a legal standpoint. It's essentially bookended and closed from an NFL handing down some sort of jurisdiction. Now it becomes a cultural point. The moral and ethical concerns around Deshaun Watson, they're always going to be there. What has happened over the past two years is something that Fans with the Cleveland Browns have had to grapple with, NFL fans have grappled with in terms of how they proceed with their own morals and ethics. We've talked about it in regards to whether or not the Browns should be held somewhat accountable morally and ethically for making such a trade. And the other teams in the NFL who didn't get Deshaun Watson, like Atlanta, New Orleans, and Carolina, Miami Dolphins, they should be held morally reprehensible for their decisions and what NFL fans will do as a result. There's all kinds of points that will continue to be interesting beyond the fact, but after this decision comes out on to, on Monday, there's not going to be any more accountability for Deshaun Watson. There's not going to be any more chance for these women to find some form of accountability and some form of vindication for coming forward against Deshaun Watson. And for 20 of the 24 women, the financial settlements at the time that they did represented some form of accountability. And each person has their own situation for choosing to settle. And settling at that time is one of the things that I said it was right for those women at that time. For the people who are going to still pursue their lawsuits against Deshaun Watson, perhaps settling will be some form of accountability later on down the road. Uh, there are all sorts of different situations that each person will decide in this case. And they've bravely come forward and decided to even pursue this in the first place because it's really hard to pursue powerful people and try and bring some sort of accountability for them. We make it really difficult in our society. And so the NFL has a chance to lead with some form of accountability, even if it's been neutered by the Deshaun Watson contract. And how if he gets suspended a full year, he won't actually lose any money. But if he gets suspended for... 12 games, he'll lose $2 million and while signing a $230 million fully guaranteed contract. If you walk out of that situation and it's been neutered, okay. Those are things that are out of the control and really should be an indictment of the systems of football that we live in, but these are just really difficult moral situations to follow. So all that being said, the main point I wanted to drive home, and I said it 10 minutes ago and everything else was just elaborating beyond it, but again, what's important is that whatever the verdict may be, 
it, it is a form of accountability for the victims of Deshaun Watson's serial sexually predatory behavior. If there's one thing I've learned over the 18 months of following stories and hearing people talk about how devastating this has been for their lives and following legal aspects of this, if there's one thing I've taken away, it's that this ultimate decision, which has been coming now for over a year, whatever punishment the NFL hands down to Deshaun Watson will hopefully be some form of accountability for the victims. And for me, based on where I stand right now, that's the only thing that matters. Welcoming back to the show, Razor Rosenthal. It has been many, many months since we've gotten his gambling expertise from Beer Life Sports, Beer Life Official. You can check out his uh, podcast as well, the Razor's Red Zone pod. And uh, it's great to talk to you again, Razor. Oh, likewise, it's been, uh, I would say, you know, end of March, early April when the NCAA tournament was going on. So we've uh, we've had a lot transpire since then with uh, the NBA playoffs, uh, Major League Baseball, Grand Slam tennis, you know, big golf events, a lot going on. So excited to, have, to be back. That's right. How about how about the tennis uh, at Wimbledon? What did you make out of everything that happened there? Because that is your number one expertise. And that's the. Uh, yeah. Is it, I guess the biggest tournament of the year. I think all of them are pretty big, but relatively the biggest tournament of the year. I think Wimbledon attracts the most mainstream tennis, uh, excuse me, non-mainstream tennis folks out there. Like you just mentioned it, you know, you're probably not a huge tennis fan, but when you hear the word Wimbledon, you assume it's the biggest, but it is one, one of the biggest by far. It could be labeled the biggest, but you have four grand slams, obviously Australia, France, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open, and I think they all hold, to me personally, the same value and the same water. Uh, this year's Wimbledon was really exciting with the emergence of Nick Kyrgios finally making a huge splash, getting to the finals as an unseated player. Um, it was a very successful Wimbledon for me on the betting side. Uh, I'm, you know, my uh, my French Open experience back in May was not as good. Kyle's just a full disclosure. There we struggled. <laughs> a lot of big underdogs came through, which I don't like betting on. But in Wimbledon, it was uh, overall pretty straightforward. Some some good profit there, and uh, very excited to get into the hard court season, which is coming up. Obviously, there are matches going on right now every week, but the big tournaments leading up to the U.S. Open, um, they're starting up soon in Cincinnati and in Washington D.C. So these next uh, these next six weeks are really huge for uh, for tennis fans and people that bet the sport. On the flip side, I wanted to ask you some baseball questions because. Uh, a lot has gone down. We did an opening day baseball podcast, and now we're getting right close to the trade deadline. So about 100 games have passed now. Uh, from a gambling standpoint, how's your baseball season been? Who are some teams that are doing well for you? Anything else that I'm not thinking about because I'm not deep into the gambling spaces? Yeah, uh, it's been a pretty good baseball season. As I always advise people, you know, with with the money line favorites, as I like to wager on, as you know, and your audience knows, if you've listened to me on this podcast, is you know, just you got to wait. We always want to wait till the end of July, which we're at right now here, um, as we sit here today, uh, the 29th of July. It's uh, it's now the time to start really 
pulling the trigger on these money line teams against really bad teams that kind of given up uh, on the sport. You know, the, the, the teams that have treated me uh, very well so far has been the Houston Astros. They've, you know, they, they, they've struggled recently against some bad teams such as the Oakland athletics, but overall the Astros have been a money machine uh, picking the spots with the Dodgers has been very successful pitch uh, picking the spots with the Braves who are getting closer and closer to taking that NL East lead and the Yankees. I mean, the Yankees have been probably the biggest surprise in major league baseball. I think we all knew the Yankees would be really good, but we didn't know they'd have the second best record uh, in the league behind the Dodgers by the end of July. So uh, those, those teams I just mentioned have been very profitable for me. Um, Love betting against some of the bad teams out there, bad teams. uh, The Reds were so bad early on. Um, The A's were, are still really bad and Kansas city is, pretty awful as well. Uh, biggest surprise, the team that I'm kind of avoiding uh, betting against because they're they, they you get a crazy price tag when you bet against them and you don't want to lose that juice. And that's the Orioles. I mean, the Orioles are, as we sit here, are one game above 500 on July 29th. I mean, nobody in their right mind would have predicted that back in, in April. So um, the Orioles seem to be like the stay away play for me all season long. Now, how incredible is that run? The Orioles are above 500 right now and you know, I was joking yesterday, well, yesterday at the time we're recording this, but I joked that the Orioles are going to be the team that for some reason starts buying at the deadline, even though they probably aren't as good as their record suggests. And even still, the fact that they're above 500 and they were predicted to have either the worst record in baseball or the second worst record in baseball is pretty incredible because as of right now, they have the same record as the Boston Red Sox, who we remember they were two games away from making the world series last year. Yeah. And I think the, the, a huge, a huge um, disappointment would be the the white Sox if they don't win the AL central, because I think they were the darling bet preseason to, you know, get back to the playoffs, even though they got blasted by Houston, you know, back in the fall last year in the first round of the playoffs. But um, the fact that, you know, Chicago is 500 there, they are a half a game behind Baltimore, which is unbelievable, you know, as far as record goes. And of course, you know, sitting behind the twins and the guardians in the central. So it's, it's a fun sport, you know, it's a long sport. You know, I start to really bet bigger and more, more volume now, but when, when my, my MLB plays Kyle in April, May, and June are very, very small. They're small with units and they're small with quantity. And I think that's the way to approach it. Do you have any explanation for what's happened to the White Sox this year? You're just observing that uh, they're kind of a a stay away team. The White Sox just aren't scoring a ton of runs. I mean, like, you know, there's they're they're a team that can put up about, you know, two, two and two and a half runs maybe per average every week, you know, and that's just not going to do it. They don't have the good enough staff to be, you know, only scoring two or three runs, you know, a night at the most. And I think that's, very problematic if you're betting the White Sox on a consistent basis. You know they're a pre- I think they're I think they're a pretty good under team. I, I don't know the trends on over unders. I don't I don't follow it. But I mean the White Sox. I mean yeah. I mean they've had some games where they they do score runs, but it just doesn't come in bunches because they have an incredible lineup. I mean they they really do. But I mean you take a look at at their last few games. I mean you know they're just they're just not impressive. I mean they lose two one. They lose six three. You know they lose. A two. I mean, they lose six three. I mean, they're scoring two and three just just very often. So, um, but they're capable of putting up a nine spot because of that one through five lineup, which I think is probably um, on paper top three or four in the AL. But 
they're not doing it, not getting the job done. Still have a chance. If you're a White Sox ticket holder for, um, you know, a seasonal win for the AL Central, I wouldn't give up on it yet. But it, it, you got to start hitting the ball and you got to start making moves right now. Would you consider hedging and maybe betting also on value for the Twins right now? Or? It, just, it, it depends what your liability is. You know, if you have small liability on the White Sox, you should bet the Twins. You know, um, if you have a huge bet on the White Sox and and you you just you can't afford to lose all that money, yes, you should you should put a little bit on the Twins. So you know, like I, I feel like if you just have uh, the right amount of money, let, let's say that you know, I'm typically betting hundred dollars. Let's just say that's the number of, of, of a gambler. And I put down $50 on the white Sox. I'd probably just hold serve there and just hope the white Sox come through. But if I went maybe higher than my normal $100 bet, I probably would hedge on the twins. So it really depends on the liability you have and, and the value of the play. But, um, I don't think it's a it's an incredibly smart bet to take Minnesota right now. If you're, you know, betting the, the, the whites, if you have a white Sox future, that's, at your normal wager or lower than your normal wager. Okay. That is good expertise to follow for anyone who is uh, finding themselves in a Chicago White Sox calamity situation. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Philadelphia Phillies because the Phillies are currently tied for the last playoff spot right now. And they have like the longest playoff drought in the, in the national league, which is weird to think about because I think that year they won the world series, but what have you made of Philadelphia so far this season, going from being absolutely terrible to now about five games above 500? Yeah, average pitching staff, right? So I think we start with that. You know, I feel like if they had two really solid aces, then um, they would be very dangerous. They're also playing in a pretty difficult NL East. I mean, the Marlins are not great, but the Marlins are not total pushovers, right? I mean, they're only, what, a handful of games below 500. Um, yeah, the Marlins are five games below 500 yeah. in, in, in the place that I've said for years that they reside, which is six yeah. games out of the playoffs with eight yeah. to play. That's yeah. basically where the Marlins have been my entire life. Yeah, and I think Bryce Harper is going to be a huge factor. You know, can you get this guy consistently healthy? Um, and the answer to that is, I don't know, you know, but without him, they're doing okay. Uh, pretty murky lineup, six through nine. It's not very good. And I think the Braves and the Mets are significantly better there. Um, when Bryce Harper re re-enters a lineup, then they're, 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 they're one through five are extremely dangerous. Um, Philly doesn't scare me because of their pitching. If you get into the playoffs and you play a, a seven game series with Philadelphia, I just don't think they have enough good guys to, uh, to get it done. So, um, they can hit their way out of some games, though. I mean, they score; they do score runs. Unlike the White Sox, uh, Philadelphia, you know, like I think last night they put up what eight against uh, against uh, Pittsburgh, and I think the night before, perhaps uh, seven against Atlanta. Uh, so this team can score in bunches, but um, their staff scares me. I have, I don't have much faith in Philadelphia to uh, overcome their deficit against Atlanta or New York. Well, do you think that the Phillies should go out and trade for someone around the deadline or are they a team that's like stand pat because we're already overachieving and, you know, this year's not going to be our year anyways? I, I think I think because they are still alive as a wild card team, if they have the ability to make a trade, especially with your staff, um, it's it could be time to do that. I think the time is now for Philadelphia because, you know, if they don't make a move here with a pitcher, they probably are going to find themselves in a very difficult race at the end of the season with the likes of the Padres, with the Giants uh, and the Cardinals to, to swallow up 
some of the uh, the last playoff spots. I, I don't. I just. I don't. I don't like the future for Philadelphia, especially if another guy goes down. I mean, what what happens if if someone goes down that is as you know close to the value of Bryce Harper for this team? I mean, it, it could be anybody. I mean, you know, we if if um, you know, let's just say Schwarber goes down for three weeks. You know, this, this team needs needs some serious help. So um, I think pitching will make a huge difference, and I think maybe. Another, I would say, I think their 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 outfields is is tremendous. So I think maybe a stronger infielder with with um, that can hit would probably help this team a lot. You know, you mentioned the Cardinals a second ago, and and they're right now tied with uh, the Phillies for the last wild card spot. And I was interested that you mentioned the Cardinals being in that wild card race. Does that mean you you firmly believe the Brewers are are good to go as the the NL Central champions? I mean, they're up. Th- three games right now and according to our friends at bet online sportsbook they are minus 250 yeah. to win the national league central so do you, are, are you feeling good about milwaukee i think it's almost like you can you can take your pencil kyle and draw like you know a little bit of a yeah we're you know it's gonna happen not 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 i'm not gonna like go into it where i'm like 100 percent all in right the writing is on the wall what i'm trying to get to there um, Milwaukee's pitching staff is significantly better than St. Louis, in my opinion. Um, one to nine hitters, it's kind of close. Um, you know, it's not that far off if St. Louis is healthy. Um, but I think the Brewers are the better team. They're younger. I mean, I feel I just feel like you know, we've had a lot of the same guys in in St. Louis for a long time, and you know, Molina's getting, you know. Uh, Wainwright has to be about 62 years old. Um, Molina, maybe, <laughs> may, maybe 54 and pool host about 87. So, yeah, we laughed about that one last year when Wainwright at 40 years old was starting a, a winner go home wild card game for the Cardinals. It's crazy, but you know, he's still amazing. And you know, what he's done over the last decade is, is just phenomenal for this franchise, but you know, these guys are okay. Now they have a decent team, Dakota Hudson. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the pitching staff for Wainwright and, and Matt's like, again, it's, it's good. It, it's, it's going to, it's going to get you to potentially the opportunity to play for a wild card, but I just can't imagine it would scare anybody's lineup. Yeah, I'm over here in uh, Sacramento, so Oakland is is like the local team, and Frankie Montas to St. Louis has been connected yeah. for like two months now. And I, I, it would be funny if Frankie Montas is that player that everyone assumes will get traded and then doesn't get traded, but it feels like it's by the time this podcast comes out, it feels like Frankie Montas might be uh, the number two or number three starter for the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, I think it's time for the fire sale to happen in Oakland. And, you know, I think Frankie, you know, needs to find a home. He should be a playoff pitcher and St. Louis could certainly benefit from it. If, if they got him, that that's a, that's a game changer. I think there's a, a different probably confidence level in that clubhouse to where they can overcome some of those losses that would have been there. And, you know, only being three behind, that's why I'm not like penciling Milwaukee as your NL central champions right away. I feel good about it. Minus 250 is, I think it's a little rich right now. You know, if you gave me the number at minus 200 or lower, I probably would buy your stock. But, yeah, that's a pretty big price tag, especially with Milwaukee, you know, not having, you know, the best hitters down below six through nine. If they, if somebody went down, that would scare me at minus 250. Yeah, I don't think either of those teams are really scaring someone in the playoffs. Like the best teams there are the Dodgers and the Mets and the Braves and, 
uh, maybe the Padres, but that's, you know, a distant fourth between those three at the top. It feels like everyone else just kind of slides into whatever seat they get. And uh, now that there's expanded playoffs, the Cardinals might play the Brewers in the first wild card round. Yeah. And I, I think your Padres are a fascinating story. You know, it's just a matter of, can they, can they finally get it done? Can they break through and win a, win a series? Have the Padres won a series uh, since making the world series in, in 96? Have they won a playoff series? Uh, they, Let's see. They made the playoffs in 05 and 06. I don't think they won a series that year. And they they did win the wild card round in 2020. I know it was the weird expanded playoffs, but yeah. I guess that's the the closest thing you can find. Yeah. Well, I think, I think San Diego's in a good spot here and you know, hopefully they they get there and you can enjoy an opportunity to take on maybe the Mets or the Dodgers, but um I have more confidence in San Diego than the last two teams we've chatted about, which would be St. Louis and Philadelphia. And the Giants are falling a little bit, but the Giants would probably be the the eighth team, whether it's the, you know, the Phillies and Cardinals are fighting for the sixth seed. The Giants are the only other team that theoretically could be a buyer going into the deadline, it would appear. So I, I think that everyone else in the National League is a seller, which is why this deadline is going to be probably just as crazy as last year because you have a ton of sellers and and not a ton of buyers yeah um that the padres are connected to every rumor so that'll be something interesting to follow as uh, i think the padres have a losing record since like may 20th so i'm i'm interested to see how they turn that around because obviously last year it all fell apart for them sure did that was a disappointing conclusion of the season for your san diego padres that it was, that it was. So uh, anything interesting to find on the American League wildcard side? I know Tampa Bay is probably going to make a move here at some point. And uh, Toronto is a really fascinating team that goes from being, you know, win seven in a row to loses five in a row. And you never can quite put your finger on them. Is there anything interesting there behind the Astros and Yankees who I've just already penciled in as making the American league championship series. I think Toronto is extremely dangerous. I mean, they were so disappointing in April and may, and now you're seeing them just at time at times explode. Right. I mean, they have put up some serious numbers over the last, I think uh, they have, I think I have the stat, right. They have the best record in baseball since the all-star break. There you go. Um, You know, they scored four touchdowns against the Red Sox. I think what last week, last Friday, Um, whatever day it was the 28 to five bloodbath Four four touchdowns in the, in the Red Sox were lucky to get a safety after a field goal. So, I mean, that's remarkable. And, and, and I know that's a stupid number 28, but they're capable of, I mean, day in and day out, putting in eight or nine runs on the board. And Toronto is a very scary team to play in the um, ALDS if you if you happen to get them. Especially, I think if you're Houston, like I just I think that I think the lineup for Houston is is really good, but it's not as good as the the Blue Jays and the Yankees. So um, I I think Toronto is they're coming they're coming around and that is a very dangerous team to play in in October. So you've got Toronto in there, Seattle's obviously right up in the mix yep. now. Cleveland is doing weird stuff and you know maybe only one team is going to make it from that division, but what have you made of Seattle at this point? I I posted on Twitter um I think it was 
back in, in somebody on MLB, one of the big MLB writers said, you know, who, which team is going over the, their, their totals that did not make the playoffs last year. And I was pretty bullish on the Mariners. And um, I, I think they're just overall, you know, very solid team. I mean, they, they, they don't, they don't give up a ton of runs. I mean, you look at their last, you know, maybe four or five outings, they're giving up two to three or four runs. Um, I, they, they play a lot of three, two games, two, one games. So it's showing me that uh, they trust their bullpen. Their starters are no one, you know, not they don't have super special uh, starters, but they have guys that, that can win. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a team that doesn't scare me if you're playing them in the playoffs in, in, a, in a, you know, best of seven series. But um, they don't have a ton of weaknesses. You know, there's some really good young talent on this team. And these are there's some guys that came on came over first came over from really good teams that are, you know, gonna you know starting to shine. You know, Abraham Toro, former Houston Astro. I mean, he's he's solid. I mean, he's not, I mean, he's he does some of the you know things that you may not expect. He's not, he's not, you know, he doesn't have a great, you know, average. I think it's under 200, but like these guys are very important to this team. And I think guys like JP Crawford and, 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 and Carlos Santana, I mean, these guys are going to make a difference um, in the playoffs if they can get there. So um, the Mariners are a good team, not a dangerous team, but I'd like to see them in the playoffs. That's a city that is dying to see their team eventually emerge into the playoffs. Yeah, I'm laughing at that one because the Padres gave up Ty France and Taylor Trammell in the same trade, and both of them are like borderline all-stars this year for Seattle. Ty France, great, great season. for. Yep, you're absolutely right. Julio Rodriguez has been crazy fun, and I'm glad that he's emerging as like someone everyone cares about in baseball because that's just going to be more fun for everyone, I would uh, guess. So I'm interested to see what happens at the trade deadline. I don't know whether any of the bigger name people go, but the trade deadline always has big time trades. And the thing I say all the time is the Braves traded half of their offense in the World Series last year at the trade deadline and ended up winning. So there, there will always be chaotic moves in the in-between. And they're this year, more than any year, they're very clear buyers and very clear sellers. There's not a lot of teams that are in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you 100% there. All right. Well, I do want to ask you some football questions. You said you've been getting into your preseason training camp NFL coverage, so I will defer to you. What have you found that's interesting? Maybe some futures plays, anything going on early, early here as the NFL calendar flips over to August? Well, you know, we can start with uh, my Buffalo Bills sitting at the top of your futures board to win the Super Bowl at uh, plus 600. Um, That to me is not that appealing. I would love if you can hand me over some more money, Kyle, than plus 600. But um, this team is uh, interesting. You know, they lost nobody on both sides of the ball and they gained Von Miller. Now, Micah Hyde was carted off today, which is scary uh, injury in training camp. So we're going to we're going to learn more probably later today about his injury uh very difficult schedule for the bills uh, opening up at at the rams on thursday night football which is going to be exciting the bills are laying a point or a point and a half depends on where you shop um so the bills are going to be very exciting this year the the afc you know good luck trying to figure out the seven teams that are going to make the playoffs in the afc good luck trying to figure out who's going to win the afc north you know i don't i don't know i mean that's going to be really interesting to see 
with uh, Cincinnati, Baltimore, you know, what's Cleveland going to be like? What's the makeup of that team? Good luck picking one through four with the AFC West. I could see Las Vegas finishing in the cellar and I can see Las Vegas like pulling off some sort of miracle and winning the AFC West. It's, it's a, it's a very difficult division to handicap. So very excited to see that unfold Um, going to the other side, uh, the NFC NFC North is I I think kind of up for grabs with Minnesota versus green Bay. A lot of people are bullish on Detroit doing, you know, going over their win total this year. I don't trust Detroit. I never will trust Detroit. Um, (laughs) So I'm not excited about the lions, but it can't get much worse than, you know, a couple of years ago. So we've seen some improvement there. The Lions were a really good team against the spread last year. I think they, they covered 70% of the time. Uh, the NFC East is to me just, you know, so blah as it has been every year. I think the Cowboys should emerge as the champions of that, of that division. Uh, the Cowboys lose, you know, a couple key players, I guess, on defense. Randy Gregory could be a big factor, big loss for them. Um, you know, Mari Cooper, you know, leaving as well could be a, Big disappointment with with the wide receiving core, but um, I just I don't know if I trust Philadelphia. I don't you know, we know we don't trust um, the commanders and we don't trust the Giants. So not an appealing division to me, uh, the NFC East, um, NFC South. I mean, that's pretty bad, Kyle. I mean, Atlanta and Charlotte, I call them Charlotte because I live here in North Carolina. Carolina is going to be terrible. I think mm-hmm. I think they are. And I think Atlanta yes, will be I am well. saying the same thing. They are so bad, but yeah. they also might not be worse than the Falcons. Yeah. Those are two really bad teams that, um, that, that, that you can, you can go to their games on, um, you know, I 85 up and down, you know, that road only take you about two hours to get to these two venues from each other. And, you know, it's a very actually, it's a very fun uh, robbery. These these two teams, the, their fan base do not like each other, Atlanta and Charlotte. So, um, I think it's Tampa's to lose. You know, I think obviously the Saints could make some noise. I think the Saints are going to be pretty good. You know, they they could be a team to to get to that nine or ten win total, nine and eight, ten and seven. Um, NFC West is, uh, you know, you can throw away the Seahawks, which is kind of weird. You know, it's like the Seahawks for so many years have been the team that you're just expecting to finish one or two. Right. And they're just going to they should be really bad this year. Um, That's a Mm -hmm. team to kind of bet against. uh, But they're trying to plug and play that rookie quarterback because they just gave DK an extension. They had every opportunity to trade Tyler Lockett and they didn't do it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I they're not they're not tanking, you know, so. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but um, Arizona, I don't know. I mean, I'm not in love with Kyler Murray, you know, so that whole thing is interesting storyline in the offseason. That's a fascinating storyline right there. The Rams are going to be good. Do they have a hangover? We'll find out on Thursday Night Football on September 8th against my Bills. And then um, the Niners uh, going with Trey Lance. And, you know, I think the Niners are going to be really good. I really do. I think the Niners are a good team. And uh, I think Trey Lance uh, is going to be the the most fascinating character for me all, all offseason to see how he he progresses into this QB1 role because that guy can run like lightning. And San Francisco, you know, with their with that threat of a quarterback running with their weapons like Kittle and Debo, um, I think they could be really good with Trey Lance. I think this Niners team has a very good chance to win the West. I think I agree with you on this one just because, you know, they weren't the second best team in the NFC last year, but they did beat the Packers in the weird snow game. And obviously Green Bay got a little bit worse. Theoretically, the Rams got a little bit worse. Tampa definitely got a little bit worse. And so it opens an opportunity for the Niners to close the gap if you 
improve what was their greatest weakness, which was the quarterback position. Yeah, no, I agree there. I think, I think so too. And um, you know, I like, I love, I love the storylines for the AFC West. I think that has been the most popular storyline as far as, you know, who's going to win it, who's going to finish second, third, fourth. And is it Kansas city for sure? Is it going to be, um, is it going to be Herbert's year finally and the Chargers will figure it out and they'll actually play a full season, you know, because you see how the Chargers just completely, you know, find a way to collapse um, every year. You know that um, somehow, some way, just, you know, have a, a stinker when it counts. Um, the Broncos, I mean, Broncos are really good defense. You know, they just never had over the last few years, um, you know, an offense to support their defense. Their defense probably was on the field, you know, all the time and just gas them. So if Russell Wilson can stay on the field longer for this team, this is a dangerous Denver team. This is not going to be like a sexy team, but man, like they can probably grind you out right with some good running. They have great, they have a great backfield now in Denver. They have a good quarterback. They have a couple weapons, but their defense is solid. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the price tag is Kyle for the Broncos to win the West, but they are very uh, attractive to me. I don't know if I would go that far, but man, Denver is, I mean, most people are putting them down as the third best team in that division because, you know, they're, they're doing the thing with Denver that they've done with the Seahawks for years, which is solid receivers, pretty great defense, Russell Wilson at quarterback, which, you know, it's not the MVP Russell Wilson of 2017 to 2020, but still a really, really good Russell Wilson, I would assume. And yeah, Denver's in a really interesting place because I just don't know what they're going to look like. Denver and the Raiders, both of them, I, I don't really know what they're going to look like. I mean, the Chargers and Chiefs are going to look similar to what they were last year, and Kansas City's going to have a different offense than they've ran in past years. But and man, I'm I'm super fascinated by what Denver and the Raiders end up doing because it's just I have no idea what it's going to be right now. So I think if you look at QB1, RB1, wide receiver, Receiver one, wide receiver two, and tight end one. Who has the best combo of all of that? And to me, it's not Kansas City. Um, I don't, and I don't think it's Denver either. I think you can make an argument that it's Las Vegas and Los Angeles. But it's the other intangibles, coaching, defense, uh, special teams. Because that's where, you know, that's where you win a lot of your games. But if you look at the the running back, the backfield for Kansas City, and you look at the backfield, um, well, Denver's, I think, actually has a good backfield, but I'm not impressed with uh, Clyde Edwards Elayer thus far. It's been very, very um, underwhelming at times. And now we look at the wide receiver core for Kansas City. Um, it's okay. I mean, Juju, um, MVS, um, Sky Moore, we don't know yet. Um but look at Vegas. I mean, that Vegas wide receiving core and Darren Waller, man, that's that to me is the best in the West, right? I would assume so. I would assume that if you have Hunter Renfro, who had as many yards last year as Mike Evans and as many touchdowns as Stefan Diggs, which is still insane to me, and you put Adams and you put Waller. Yeah, I think it's going to make Derek Carr look even better than Derek Carr looked last year, where, you know, he was one of the, I think he was like ninth or 10th in, in passer rating last year. So I, I think it's going to be stable enough for the Raiders to win a lot of games. I don't know whether Josh McDaniels adds any value or not on, on the offensive side of the ball, but I, yeah, I would, I would agree with you on the Raiders. I would think so. I mean, you know, Josh McDaniels has, 
you know, proven himself obviously as one of the top three OCs for the last decade plus. So you would hope that that knowledge that, that he's acquired through working with Tom Brady and all of the weapons in new England, that he brings that over to Vegas. I, I just think this Vegas, uh, like we said, the, those five uh, skilled positions, one through five are as good as anyone in the West. Um, you know, I think from a quarterback standpoint, Derek Carr may be the, the guy that you have a little bit of um, hesitation with compared to Herbert Wilson and Mahomes. But I, I think, I think uh, Josh Jacobs, I'm an RB position is still very solid. Um, you know, he doesn't get a lot of love for some reason, but Jacobs went healthy. He puts up some pretty solid numbers. So I, I like this Raiders team. And, and I think it's, it's the division that, you know, we are hyping up overall the, you know, us social media pundits and podcasters like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And I think it should, it really should live up to the hype of which team emerges and which team is going to be the biggest disappointment. Very eager to see that. And they play against the NFC West, which will make it all the more interesting because those teams are really, really good. And that's going to be super fun to watch. Yeah, I agree. So the last well, I guess the last group that I wanted to follow up on with you is you were high on the Vikings. You said it was a toss up between the Packers and the Vikings in the NFC North. So you're, you're like in Minnesota and the the small little changes they've made over the offseason. Well, let me give you that answer at uh, 7.42 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday, September 11th. Then I'll have a better <laughs> idea because they're going to they're going to take on the Green Bay Packers who come in at minus one and a half, maybe minus one twenty five on the money line. Uh, when they travel to U.S. Bank Stadium in Minnesota that day. Um, well, you know, I don't trust their defense a whole lot, Kyle. Um, I do trust uh, Justin Jefferson. I do somewhat trust Dal Cook. He's got to stay healthy. I have sort of a feeling with Adam Thielen. Um, I, I, this is a good team, not a great team, but, I mean, Green Bay's defense will be solid. Green Bay's running game will be solid. Green Bay's quarterback is going to be solid. But we all, you know, all can agree that where is Aaron, who is Aaron throwing to? And we know how frustrated this guy gets when, you know, things don't go his way. And, you know, there's not a superstar to throw to right now on the football field for, for Aaron Rodgers. So um, I'm not, I'm not bullish on Green Bay doing a whole lot. And uh, unless their defense becomes, um, you know, some of the amazing defenses we've seen in the last decade or so. But um, I think this is Minnesota's best chance, though, in the last six years, right, to uh, emerge as the North champions. The Bears are going to be pretty awful. The Lions should be, you know, a team that shouldn't threaten you, but they can beat you if you're Minnesota. But, but I uh, I do like Minnesota in a, in a, in a small play, um, whatever their value is right now to win the North, probably more so than what you have to pay for the Packers. I think that would make sense on a value play. Let's see. Uh, value, what's yeah, the, value, yeah. Let's see yeah, what the NFC North odds are looking like right now. I, I would not, I would not endorse or sign off on putting, you know, your normal units or more units on the Minnesota Vikings. I think it's pizza or beer money, Kyle, you know, like mm-hmm. if there's a team that can finally overthrow another team that always wins a division, it's like, I feel like it's this 2022 situation with the Packers and the Vikings. The best odds I can find on Minnesota across a number of betting sites is approximately plus 300. Sure. And that's going to put what Green Bay at minus 170, I would imagine. I haven't even looked. 
according to our friends at Bet Online Sportsbook, it is one eighty minus one eighty. Okay, so I'm, I'm ten cents off there. So you know, it's not it's not terrible value, Green Bay. It really it really isn't. Um, you kind of may want to just start then with one of those one of those bets, right? And then just kind of see what what happens on um, you know by October eighth or 9th. And if you feel like your bet is in the gutter, then then you got to just just go the other way, you know, just because you shouldn't be, you're, you're not going to be threatened by Detroit or Chicago. So if you took Minnesota and, you know, Green Bay looks really promising and they're going to take, they're going to take care of business. Maybe their price tag goes from 180 to 280, but you know, your, your beds, your bet is in the gutter. You just have to lay the minus 280. So, and, and then the flip side, you know, you can take Green Bay right now at minus 180. And if like you get to October 31st and, um, Minnesota looks hot. So you lost your plus 300, but maybe you get Minnesota at even money. That's, you know, I almost kind of like taking Green Bay right now here, Kyle, end of July at minus 180 and then uh, hedging it um, as the middle of the fall takes place and take Minnesota. That, that's probably the smarter thing to do. You know what? I like that idea. I think that is a that is a fun little way to to add some value to an NFC North. But I guess in my mind, I just assume the Packers would win, even if you take away Devontae Adams or uh, take, I guess they didn't really lose anyone else significant, but, you know, take away a couple pieces and, and the Packers are still ahead of, of Minnesota. So I was fascinated by that. Uh, the last question I want to get to you before is, uh, the college football realignment that has happened within the last two and a half months. Uh, obviously there are talks about the ACC moving over to another division, uh, but there are teams from the ACC switching, but, of course, they have a weird deal with their television contract. And of course, USC and UCLA are now over in the Big Ten as of uh, either next year or the year after that. I think it's going to be 2024, but uh, we are preparing for a USC-UCLA exit from the Pac-12. So what did you make of college football realignment kicking off for the, I guess, second time in the last two years, but also for the first time in 13 years? So the initial um, feelings that I had were of disappointment, like right off the bat, like this is getting kind of ridiculous, you know, um, UCLA traveling to Rutgers in the fall to play football. <laughs> That's like the first thing I thought of, right. It's bad enough that Rutgers is in the big 10. So, um, you know, USC travels to Minnesota in November. Um, you know, and then I, then I have to like, okay, now let's think about this. Everything's changing. You know, the landscape of, of college athletics is completely different now right so my next train of thought was like you know what at this point it really doesn't matter because tradition kyle is gone tradition Mm -hmm. from the 1940s the 1980s the 1990s it's been thrown out now for 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 years and now you know with all of the different opportunities for student athletes especially football players to be paid um tradition's gone so now i have to put on my progressive hat as a, as a, uh, someone who's involved in this industry and also as a fan. And now I'm at the point saying, you know what, let it happen. Let it unfold. Let's give this a chance. Let's see what it's like to um, have UCLA play Michigan. And why not? Right. Why not Carolina, uh, UNC Chapel Hill play um, Georgia every year? Why not? You know, geographically, for some of these teams, it makes no sense, but for some of them, it does. And it's all about the money and we're not going to change that narrative. Right. So I think you have to adapt and accept what is going down because 
if you are hungry and thriving and begging for the old Big 12 and the old Big 8 to only have Texas versus Texas A&M and, and you're begging for Syracuse to play UConn in, in college hoops, it's done. That is, that is way past us. So just buckle up, enjoy this weird bumpy ride of college athletics that is in 2022, and I'm ready to embrace it, Kyle. I mean, I'm okay with it. You know what? Here's the thing. We all can complain. We all can vent. But at the end of the day, especially the gamblers out there, me and all the people that that listen to your podcast and our Beer Life podcast that bet, you're still going to bet UCLA at Wisconsin. You're still going to bet Rutgers at USC in a Big Ten showdown. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. So that's how I feel about it. Well, let me throw uh, one fun hypothetical at you because I was listening to uh... – the former CEO of ESPN, uh, John Skipper, talking on a podcast. And one of the things he mentioned is that uh, one of the ways to increase revenue is by having uh, teams in as many states as possible. It's why like Miami is more valuable to the Big Ten than it is to the SEC, because the SEC already has the Florida market. And so the SEC network is charging that state, uh, I think it's like, $14.99 instead of $9.99 for the SEC network. Um, so one of the fun ideas he brought up is it makes sense for the ACC and SEC to do a trade of teams. And the teams he proposed would be Tennessee, but in this case, Vanderbilt goes to the ACC and your NC State Wolfpack go to the SEC. What would you think of a situation like that, of a conference trade between your beloved Wolfpack leaving the Tobacco Road ACC Basketball League? Again, you know, if the initial reaction would be, I hate it. And then I have <laughs> to like sit down, have a drink. Okay, let's think about this. What it, what's best for this university from a revenue standpoint? Probably the SDC, right? I mean, 100% for football. I mean, NC State fans would be just so excited to play Auburn in the hills, right? Or Ole Miss at the Grove and Florida at the Swamp. Times are changing, Kyle, so I don't disagree or super agree with um, what he had to say about swapping out like the Commodores for the Wolfpack and the ACC and SEC to ensure that there is, you know, an ACC representative in the volunteer state. I think it's fine. Um, I do think that all of these conferences are going to eventually collapse. What I mean by that is um, collapse from a standpoint of um, having all different teams, maybe, maybe combine with each other at some point, you know, over the next few years. So at this point, yes, my initial reaction would be like, this is, Yes, I cannot believe we're not going to have an opportunity to play Carolina and Duke every single year, blah, blah, blah. And then it will settle, settle in and say, wow, NC State at, at Tennessee or, you know, NC State at Alabama. That's, that's going to be cool. It's more fun than NC State at Duke, you know. So, you know, it's just it's fine. I, I, that, that, that's probably the reactions that I will have. Like initially, like very disappointed and then like, OK, wait a minute. Times are changing and. The SEC is probably a great thing for the Wolfpack. You know what? That seems like a healthy way to look at it. That's what yeah. I'll say. Seems like a very healthy way to go about it. I hope so. I don't know. I mean, again, it's 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 bothering a lot of people, but also is, is getting are getting a lot of people excited. So, um, I have a feeling that uh, you know NC State will stay put. That's my my gut my gut reaction to it. Um, but 
at this juncture, who the heck knows? I think that's the best way to put it, because six years from now, it might just be an independent uh, league where they they license the names of the schools to, from universities. That could be where all of this is headed. There's so gonna, many different possibilities. There'll be the Beer Life Conference featuring NC State, Vanderbilt, uh, Indiana. That's what we'll Wake have Forest. <laughs> Wake Forest. Yeah, I, yeah. Who I, I agree with you. I, I think there's a really good chance that that everything will be independent and. You know, we're going to sit back and say, man, I miss those ACC days, but times have changed. You got to you got to evolve with with changes that you don't want to be the old guy, you know, complaining. And that's kind of where I what I want to avoid as well. Well, Razor, I appreciate you coming back to the show. I'm excited for football season to roll around. Week zero is only four weeks away <laughs> with another terrible Nebraska and Northwestern football game that they keep feeding us every year. Uh, very, very excited to talk football with you coming up over the next few months. I don't discredit week zero. I'm very excited <laughs> for week zero because that means we have something to do that weekend. We do. We have a Big Ten showdown um, with Nebraska and uh, Northwestern, right? And uh, yeah, that's <laughs> is that is that considered week zero? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I'm guessing. I, I'm trying to remember what the week zero. I so saw the week ne- zero schedule a while. Nebraska Nebraska is playing um, Northwestern. And by the way, Nebraska laying 12 points. I think at Northwestern last time I checked. Um, mm-hmm. That game is Saturday, the 27th. So maybe that is considered week zero. And yes, week it is week Labor zero. Uh, also on week zero, we have Vanderbilt at Hawaii. Oh, that's, and... that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Is that an SEC it. game? Is Hawaii in the SEC yet? Or is that, or is that just an, <laughs> or is that an out-of-conference game? I just want to want to make sure we're on the same page there. Um, that game starts at uh, 10.30, stand, uh, 10.30 time at Vanderbilt. In Vanderbilt, that game begins at 10.30 at night, local time. Okay, so, okay. so 10.30. Uh, well, Vanderbilt is is um in central time so oh so 9 30 9 30 local central, time yeah. okay <laughs> um so vanderbilt versus hawaii can i can i can i guess the line there uh i don't have it up but let me look you don't for have it, it up yes. okay let me okay. let me look for it real quick i, I you know hawaii is really bad and so is vanderbilt <laughs> so, i mean <laughs> okay i have two... the, i have a line here okay i've okay. got you those are two terrible teams so you know, we'll give a field goal to Hawaii for the home field, but the SEC is just, you know, despite Vanderbilt being a terrible SEC team, they are still much better, I think, than Hawaii. I really believe that. So, you know, on a neutral field, I would make that Vandy like nine or 10. So let's drop it to like four and a half, five Vanderbilt on the road. Am I close? You you were close. Uh, according okay. to Bet Online Sportsbook, Vandy is a six and a half point favorite. Okay, so like the over under is I'll set stay at with 55. five. I'll stay with five. Some point it's not easy to handicap that game, um, but um, that's just an awful game, right? Um, so you know, I <laughs> yeah, I, probably, I, yeah. but but there are alternative options like Wyoming at Illinois. Is Josh Allen playing in that game or no? <laughs> No, um, but we get Brett Bielema. <laughs> well, isn't that Illinois played week zero against Nebraska last year? I think they upset. I them. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Illinois is home or away? Uh, it's in Illinois. I'll handicap that for you. Um, All right. Three points for home. And you got to add it. This, I mean, Wyoming wasn't that great last year, right? They're not good. They haven't really 
really done anything except on the hardwood. They were a fun basketball team to watch last year. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about them, and you know, when we had our Mountain West Conference chat, yeah, I, I think Illinois has got to be over a touchdown. So let's. I'm throwing out got to be a nine and a half to ten and a half range. So we'll throw out the number ten. Uh, you nailed it, ten and a half. Ten, yeah, it's got to be right. Um, so. Ten and a half is the number. By the way, they were uh, seven and six last year, but they did win the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. Okay, where... so they made a bowl last year, but everybody makes a bowl, so you know. But they yeah. they're not a threat in the Mountain West. Like they're they just haven't been that good. I don't think since <laughs> Josh Allen. I don't I even think they were that good with Josh Allen. So. No, I think Josh um, Allen's senior year they were like six and six or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. So I'm not too scared of the pokes on the football field. But there you go, Illinois back in week zero. So is Nebraska. So very exciting. I can't but believe hey, Craig Bull is still there. I just I looked up their team. Forever. I can't believe Craig Bull is still the coach there. He was this old man who was coaching there when I was a child. He's still at Wyoming somehow. <laughs> hey man, you know. There you go. Consistency is the way to look at it. Uh, yeah. Hey, I, I'll take anything um, over over waiting for the MLB, you know, slate to start sometimes on Saturday at four Eastern. You know, sometimes we have to wait till four. So on August 27th, hey, you know, put put on put on the game, you know, put yeah. on Wyoming, Illinois. Why not bet it? Have fun. You know, don't go crazy. Don't bet. Don't bet seven units on Wyoming. But, you know, hey, I'll probably have some investment in those games. Can be fun. Yeah, in prime time, you can watch Florida A&M, the Rattlers, take on North Carolina. <laughs> oh, is that here in Chapel Hill? Is that I game think here? So. I would have, of course it is. It has to be. They're not traveling to Florida A&M. I, I will not be at that game, by the way. And, and I know uh, you probably know this. May, maybe some of your loyal listeners that listen to me back in the day, I, I do live within a couple miles from uh, Keenan Flagler Stadium at UNC Chapel Hill. I can actually walk there. It's not even a couple miles, probably a mile and a half, but I uh, will not make an appearance for the Florida A&M game. So. No, that would that would be understandable, but you can watch it on ACC Network. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Week zero is so strange. Anyways, thank you again, Razor. I really appreciate the time. I love my time with you, Kyle. Let's let's do it again as we uh, approach here the uh, the football season at the end of the month. Absolutely. Thank you again. You got it, buddy. Take care.